Notes on the Defence of Irish Country Houses was a document drafted by George O'Callaghan Westrop, a descendant of an old East Clare landlord family. The draft was probably written in February 1914, in or around that time in any case. This is a document from before the First World War, from the time of the whole rural crisis, and is all about how to defend your mansion, not from the petrol and paraffin of the Irish Republican Army, but from rampaging hordes of supporters of the old Irish Parliamentary Party, or the Home Rule Party as it was also known. George O'Callaghan Westrop's view is a view from the gates of the Big House. The peak of the Big House burnings of the Tan War guerrilla insurgency happened 100 years ago in June and early July 1921, when partisans of the Irish Republican Army went in for what the Irish Times of the time called a house-burning mania. Sometimes this was a matter of destruction and reprisal for property destruction carried out with Crown forces. Many of the landlords and ex-landlords of the big houses were supporters of the British state, and hence collective punishment for them was a response to the collective punishment of house burnings and criminal sabotage indulged in by the forces of the British state. Other times IRA actions simply aimed to destroy any large building that could be used to accommodate enemy troops. Those blackened, gaunt, skeletal ruins make for a romantic gothic image, and doubtless the night sky lit up must have seemed like the world turned upside down. But in fact, in the whole of the Tan War, Truce and Civil War, only about 4% of big houses in the country were torched. George O'Callaghan Westrop's biography lets us look at things a little differently. This former landlord and erstwhile British Army officer, rather than being burned out, ended up, by 1922, as a leading activist in the Irish Farmers' Union, a representative organisation with nearly 100,000 members. The first half of this podcast is on George O'Callaghan Westrop. Then in the second half, we look a bit more at the Irish Farmers' Union. This is Peters and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land, and you're listening to our second episode in our new three-part series on the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. This second episode is entitled Notes on the Defence of Irish Country Houses. Make sure to subscribe to get future episodes and you can go back and have a listen to some of our earlier productions in this vein. We've covered Irish regiments in the British Army and rural and labour and agrarian conflicts during the Irish Revolution. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Peters and Sheep is on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Um, my name is Terry Dunn and I research, write and narrate these podcasts. I actually live on what was George O'Callaghan Westrop's estate, a couple of kilometres down the road from where the domain and big house were. The house is gone now, demolished in the 1960s. Follow Peters and Sheep on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. I'll be sharing bits and bobs about the broader history of the O'Callaghan estate. So this episode is a rebel tale. It's a tale that rebels against the presupposition that the parliamentary party and its followers represented the voice of moderate conciliatory reason about to be drowned out by the atavistic, land-hungry sectarianism of Sinn Féin. And our tale rebels against the presupposition that the parliamentary or home rule party on the one hand and Sinn Féin and the IRA on the other hand can be neatly thought of as the home rulers as a conservative right-wing faction and the Sinn Féiners as being the radical left-wing faction. Notes in the defence of Irish country houses, after all, dates from several years before the 1916 rising and the 1918 general election 
when the parliamentary party was still overwhelmingly dominant. Now, I'm not saying that our usual view of these parties is all smoke and no fire. If you look at women's suffrage or at the housing of the Dublin working class, then the conservative face of the Home Rule Party is quite apparent. They counted slumlords among their elected officials. They opposed votes for women. And a Home Rule Parliament dominated by the Irish Parliamentary Party would have protected Ireland from some of the new welfare legislation of the British Liberal government. On the other hand, Home Rule factions were involved in decades of extra-parliamentary mobilisation that won considerable measures of social reform, including the first significant public housing schemes in the United Kingdom and the transfer of land ownership to tenant farmers and the beginnings of land redistribution. We'll be looking at things a little differently as well when we get to the Irish Farmers Union in the years 1922 and 23. The general elections in those years were supposedly all about pro-treaty Republicans versus anti-treaty Republicans. But in a number of constituencies in the South and East, the majority of the vote was divided up between the Labour Party and the Farmers' Party. The Farmers' Party was the political wing of the Irish Farmers' Union. Conventionally, the start of the Irish Revolution is dated from the Home Rule Crisis of 1912 to 1914, the time notes in the defence of Irish country houses comes from. I'll go into more detail in a bit, but that was basically when you have the Ulster Volunteer Force and armed mass mobilisation against legislation for local self-government for Ireland. That is often seen as the beginning of a chain of events. Then there was a nationalist pro-home rule counter-mobilisation and then a radical faction of that counter-mobilisation launched a separatist insurrection in 1916 and so on. We need to remember though, for George O'Callaghan Westrop in 1914, that was all history that hadn't happened yet. That was all in the future. To him, the home rule crisis was not something that came before the 1916 rising and the 1918 election. To him, the Home Rule crisis was something coming after the Ranch War. That was his context in 1914, and that was part of the context to notes in the defence of Irish country houses. The Ranch War was in many ways a precursor to the 1920 cattle drives I talked about in an earlier podcast. And this was basically about perceived inequities in the distribution of farmland, as opposed to landlord and tenant relations per se. Though either way, landlords were in the proverbial firing line as owners of large domains and home farms. So before 1912, George O'Callaghan Westrop had over 500 acres in his own hands, like that's his own farm, um, or landlords came into it as owners of so-called untenanted land, which was, despite this confusing name, actually let out on an 11-month basis, usually to comparatively wealthy graziers. So these were the lands that were targeted in the ranch war, or often targeted in the ranch war, and also in the 1920 cattle drives. In the ranch war, there were cattle drives, driving cattle and sheep off disputed properties, and these were big communal events, involving more people than was necessary to simply move the animals. There were perambulations by marching bands traversing beside or around a disputed property, and there were rallies, and there was boycotting. Boycotting aided by local newspapers who reported on the resolutions of the meetings, deciding on the boycotts, thereby advertising the plans far and wide. The organisation driving this forward was the United Irish League, one of the grassroots associations affiliated to the Irish Parliamentary Party. Agrarian agitation interrelated with state policy. A bout of agitation would lead to new reforming policies, or at least to commissions and reports. Then the hope raised by the attentions of the central state would lead to a new bout of agrarian agitation. George O'Callaghan Westrop's home county of Clare was centrally involved in the Ranch War. The Ranch War is usually dated from 1906 to 1909. 
But when we put movements like that within discrete dates, while we express something of their nature, we also lose something. While those were the key years, similar forms of collective action carried on in the aftermath. So taking Clare as our example, there was a cattle drive in Doolin in 1910, at Newmarket on Fergus in 1912, and at Ballyline in 1914. The United Irish League didn't go away. On local levels, there is evidence that its activists and loose informal networks were still around to take part in the agrarian conflicts of the 1920s. George O'Callaghan Westrop lost out in the era of the ranch war. He had inherited an estate from his maternal uncle. Uh, under the terms of that inheritance, he had to add the Westrop surname to his name. And what happened to that estate? It was compulsorily purchased by the Congested Districts Boards, which was a government body set up to address the problems of the West of Ireland, with one of its tasks being land distribution and assisting in town purchase. Now, the board got compulsory purchase powers in 1909 and took O'Callaghan Westrop's Coolery estate in 1912. Meanwhile, his father died and he moved back to the family home of Maryfort and inherited his father's estate. The tenants on that estate would have purchased their lands around that time also. So by the end of it, O'Callaghan Westrop is left with a big house and a big farm. He's a substantial farmer now, but no longer a landlord. Henry Valentine McNamara was another Clare landlord in difficulty in those days. He was based out of what is now the Falls Hotel in Ennis Diamond, over to the northwest of the county. The Doolan cattle drives of 1908 and 1910 targeted McNamara lands. Both of these drives were later celebrated in verse. These two men, Henry Valentine McNamara and Georgia Callum Westrop, went on to be the two leading activists in the County Clare Unionist Club. Although the titular head of the club was Lucius William O'Brien, the 15th Baron Inchquin, it was McNamara and O'Callaghan who were the busiest campaigners. They were British nationalists in Ireland, part of a minority who wanted Ireland to remain within a unified British state and not have any form of devolved government let alone independence. These British nationalists were and are called Unionists in reference to the act of union that unified Scotland and England and later Britain and Ireland. Now, by and large, the division between Irish Unionists and Irish nationalists ran and runs along confessional lines, with unionism being concentrated in the northeast of the island where the Protestant minority formed a local majority. County Clare was the least Protestant county in Ireland, so O'Brien, O'Callaghan, and McNamara were on a hiding to nothing insofar as unionism was concerned. These were what were known as Southern Unionists to distinguish them from their more demographically substantial Northern or Ulster comrades and in some ways their pursuit of their cause amounted to hitching their wagons to Ulster's express train. O'Callaghan was fully expecting civil war in these years. In early 1913 he wrote to his solicitors instructing them to disinvest from the British Empire. He did not want his funds, quote, in British railways, British industrials, or any Indian stock or enterprise. In view of my probable early departure with my family to settle in a foreign country, of the possibility of my death in the Ulster War, and of the national breakup which I regard as inevitable in the near future, you will appreciate why I don't want a host of trust funds when the House of Cards falls, end quote. The prospect of civil war, at the very least in Ireland, was not an unrealistic one. While today's image of British nationalist paramilitarism is tattoos, steroids and pitbulls, the Ulster Volunteer Force of Edwardian Vintage was a much more impressive undertaking as a military body. A lot of the time the Ulster opposition to home rule is just seen as an Irish issue. But in fact it was part of a United Kingdom-wide reactionary backlash 
which was about more than just devolved government for Ireland. That was perhaps more just its patriotic cause celebrate. What saw this whole situation from tottering over into open conflict was the World War. And in Britain, and even Ireland, internal social peace descended amidst the world geopolitical conflict. But as we now know, it was only for a few years. A few years later, hostilities would be resumed. In early 1918, we find O'Callaghan writing. Conditions here are far more dangerous than during the rebellion of 1916. I remember well the country in 1879 to 1882. It is far worse now. By 1879 to 1882, O'Callaghan meant the land war. The first of the great succession of agrarian insurgent movements which dotted the decades at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th. The cattle drives had restarted in early 1918 with the new tempo. There were a couple of reasons for this. There were cattle drives in 1918 as a resumption of the ranch war. The same social conditions that prevailed at the time of the ranch war still existed. And government efforts to address them were stymied by First World War budgetary constraints. Efforts at land redistribution and infrastructural investment in the west of Ireland were on hold because all the British government's funds were being devoted to killing Germans. There were cattle drives in 1918 because there was a food supply crisis related to the First World War. So sometimes the 1918 movement is called the tillage movement, the aim at times being to force the rental of disputed lands as small tillage plots for growing vegetables. There were food riots in Germany and the Netherlands at this time, anti-food export direct actions by Republican volunteers in Ireland's port cities, and of course the Russian Revolution of 1917 started with a protest over the price of bread. So these new cattle drives were all of a piece with all that. There were cattle drives in 1918 because this is when the new Sinn Féin and the volunteers of the Irish Republican Army were trying to supplant the old Irish Parliamentary Party, trying to supplant it as the main voice of Irish nationalism, and they were doing that pretty much in the same way the Parliamentary Party had become a force in Irish life, through engaging in extra-parliamentary agrarian agitation. Now, as it happened, the British government in the spring of 1918 tried to introduce conscription, compulsory military service, to feed the meat grinder in France and Flanders. So what that did was give the Republicans an alternative issue to campaign on and mobilise around. In many ways, one that was much more useful to them. Incidentally, insisting on Irish conscription was Longford man Sir Henry Wilson, then the newly appointed Chief of the Imperial General Staff. Wilson featured prominently in our earlier podcast, Dubs, Dirty Shirts and the World Revolution. In 1918, County Clare was Cattle Drive Central, and the district where George O'Callaghan Westrop had his home was one particularly prone to this popular mobilisation for the land for the people. In fact, Clare was declared a special military area on the 25th of February 1918 and put under what amounted to martial law. This was the first time this was done in anywhere in Ireland after 1916, and this was in response to the cattle drives. There were cattle drives in George O'Callaghan Westrop's immediate neighbourhood of the northeastern corner of Clare on the 17th of January 1918, and again on the 5th of February, and on the 9th, 15th and 20th of February. Particularly targeted was the Gore estate at Derrymore, Kilno and Balnhinch. It is notable that the Land Commission divided that property in the second half of the 1920s. Uh, a lot more happened than just cattle drives. There were clashes with the constabulary, the seizure of their arms, disruption of a sawmill providing wood to the British military, and further south the castle Fergus cattle drive saw the death of one volunteer at the hands of the Royal Irish Constabulary with another suffering life-changing injuries which were to contribute to his early death. 
That was a very particular moment in history. Then the orders came down the line from the Republican leadership to desist from involvement in cow drives. It was also clerical opposition. The big resumption of cattle driving in the spring of 1920 was a very different moment. A movement much more autonomous and outside any national, political or parliamentary organisational structure. The 1920 movement was much less of a big deal in Clare than the earlier movements, which is something of interest and worthy of further research. On the night of the 6th of January 1920, George O'Callaghan Westrop was to have an encounter with the IRA when they came to requisition arms from his house. The IRA in this period armed itself through seizing privately owned firearms, or the firearms of the police, and even through buying guns of British soldiers. Uh, now, Callum Westrop wasn't for handing his guns over, and there was in fact an exchange of fire with the IRA party, but in the end he surrendered his weapons. What happens then is from the summer of 1920 to the summer of 1921, we get into the phase of earnest guerrilla warfare. A crude indicator to use, but a convenient one, is fatal casualties. And it's from August 1920 onwards that there are regular fatalities among the Crown forces in Clare. O'Callaghan Westrop commented on the reprisals and repressions the state deployed to meet this challenge. He wrote, Our men, that is the shame of it, were recruiting for Sinn Féin by their crimes and creating bitterness which is the main cause of a difficulty in making a permanent settlement. O'Callaghan Westrop was then in the position of speaking out against the British state's efforts to suppress the Republican insurgency in Ireland. And in January 1921, in retaliation, some of his sheds were burned and he received a threatening letter which reads as follows. Notice to O'Callaghan Westrop, commonly known as Mousetrop. Our society has its eye on you. You are a double dealer and a twister. One more of your ruddy speeches or letters and you are doomed. There is no fool like an old fool. So beware, be wise. And this was signed, the anti-Sinn Féin gang. Uh, as well as this, he's uh, around this time a founder member of the Clare Farmers Association the local branch of the Irish Farmers' Union. And that organisation cooperated with the Republican counter-state and it certainly worked with the newly independent Free State when that is founded in 1922. One of the functions of the Senate, the parliamentary upper chamber of the Free State, was the representation of the minority, namely the Protestant minority. When approached to join the Senate as a minority representative in 1922, O'Callaghan replied his role in public life was representing farmers. And as such, he represented not a minority, but a majority. We'll pause there for a minute before having a look at the Irish Farmers' Union in our second half. If you like the Peters and Sheep project, make sure to support it by sharing it. And thanks to everyone who has been sharing. Peters and Sheep is on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, so you can find us in those places and share our announcements. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, as regards thanks and acknowledgements, thanks are due to James, the project's producer. You can see more of his work on scammedia.ie. Also, the theme music we are using is from freemusicarchive.org by an artist called Lobo Loco. The track is called All Night Long. We'll be uploading further acknowledgements and references onto the project website, peersandsheep.ie. Now we'll get back to the Irish Revolution and the Irish Farmers Union. The Irish Farmers Union held its first annual conference in 1919. But already before that, there were local representative organisations, like with Andrew Kettle and the Dublin Farmers in 1913, which we'll cover in the next Peters and Sheep podcast. The main goals of the Irish Farmers Union, or IFU we'll call it for short, their goals were to oppose government regulation, to counter the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which was at this time becoming the representative organisation of farmers' employees, and sometimes opposing government regulation and opposing the transport union was one and the same thing, as probably the high point of the transport union's influence 
was when it forced in a policy of export controls. And then there was also the government regulation that the IFU liked. So one issue was standing against global free trade. In this instance, opposing any lifting on, on the ban on the import of live cattle from Canada to Britain. Of course, that last one is still a live issue today. Parts of the IFU also raised the issue of the price farmers were getting for their products and the existence of price-setting cartels among merchants, something which is likewise still a live issue today. The IFU also supported unpurchased tenants, that is to say tenants who had yet to purchase their farms under the Land Acts, and campaigned for lower rates. Rates were a form of local taxation. Both of these issues proved more controversial within the ranks of the farmers. There were still people in the Clare Farmers Association who were both farmers and landlords, and they broke away from the association on account of the stance taken on behalf of unpurchased tenants, specifically over the association's conciliatory approach during a rent strike. The issue of rates was at times also controversial for the reason that some smaller farmers felt themselves to be at least potentially the beneficiaries of local government expenditure. That said, ratepayers' associations were precursors of the farmers' local organisations, and the rate protests of the 1960s were the largest and most militant farmer protests of the post-independence period. And also I should say, as regards the trade union movement forcing regulation of food exports, it wasn't just the transport union involved in that. It was also the National Union of Dock Labourers, um, which the transport union broke away from, and the wider labour movement. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, as well as the Irish Farmers Union, there was a newspaper, The Irish Farmer and Stock Owner, and after 1922, The Farmers Party. The high tide of The Farmers Party was the August 1923 general election, where they won 15 seats with just over 12% of the vote. That actually put the Farmers Party in third place, ahead of Labour. Now, politics in this period is generally seen as being about pro-treaty versus anti-treaty, all about the two wings of the divided nationalist movement. But in some eastern counties, the Farmers Party and the Labour Party between them won significant slices of the vote. Uh, in fact, the 1922 election was better for Labour. So, just going with the 1923 election, small majorities of the vote went to the Farmers and Labour Parties between them in Kildare and Wexford, as well as quite large proportions of the vote in counties like Wicklow, Waterford and Meath. It's also worth noting that a lot of people didn't vote. Like in Kildare in 1923, only a small majority of the electorate actually voted. As I said, the 1922 election was actually better for Labour. In that one, in terms of vote percentages, they were actually the second largest party. Both parties, both the Labour Party and the Farmers Party, were also capable of winning seats outside of the South East and East. For instance, in 1923, the Labour Party won a seat in Galway and the Farmers Party won one in Donegal. So there was a Farmers Union newspaper and a party, and to have the complete set of accoutrements, one also needed a paramilitary organisation. And something of that sort was proposed in 1920 in the form of the Farmers Freedom Force. The circumstances of this embrace of militancy was the April 1920 high-water mark of the influence of the labour movement, namely the bacon and butter embargo. We have to rewind a bit there to understand the bacon and butter embargo. As I was saying, there was a massive food supply crisis during the First World War, a really serious rise in the price of food, and that forms the backdrop to a lot of the social conflict in the period. In the United Kingdom, the main governmental response to this crisis was compulsory tillage and wage fixing in agriculture and price controls for foodstuffs in the marketplace. At least as regards this part of the world, our image of rationing is more from the Second World War than the First World War. In the First World War, the emphasis was more on price controls than rationing. Now, the rise in the cost of living continued until after the war, as did some of the government regulations. 
Then in the spring of 1920, the regulations were being lifted and the butter and bacon embargo was a response to that. It was an attempt by the workers' movement to keep the price of food down. The pivotal role here was actually played by the National Union of Dock Workers, the Liverpool-based union that the transport union was a breakaway from. So food price controls ended on March 31st, 1920. There was a consequent rise in the price of food, and then there was a two-day strike by the dock workers, after which they boycotted food exports. So there are parallels here with the first Peelers and Sheep podcast, the one on the Meath and Kildare farm labour strike of 1919, where there was the crucial role of dock workers and other logistic workers in boycotting exports from the strike-bound areas. So the result of what was happening in the spring of 1920 was a conference between food exporters, the trade union movement, farmers, and the Department of Agriculture under which exports were resumed, but in such a way as to prevent a dramatic inflation. Basically, some of the state controls were continued for some weeks on what I suppose might be called a voluntary basis, though one might argue that it was not voluntary at all. Rather, the coercive power of the state was being supplanted by the coercive power of the workers' movement. And indeed, that is exactly how leading farmers' union activists thought of it. So IFU leader Dennis Gorey stated that the labour movement had assumed the powers of a government. The uh, butter and bacon embargo seems to have achieved what it aimed to achieve in the way of price stability. Uh, In October and November 1920, export controls were reimposed on butter. I think that might have to do with uh, seasonal scarcity. It can be a bit confusing in the early 1920s when one says government, as there weren't in effect multiple governments. Firstly, the Crown government or London government. Secondly, the separatist Dáil administration. And of course, there was also the devolved Stormont administration in Belfast. So when I'm talking about the Department of Agriculture regarding the butter and bacon embargo, it is the Department of Agriculture of the Crown Government, or the UK Government, but that already was a separate Department of Agriculture specifically for Ireland. Then there was a Dáil Department of Agriculture as well, a Republican Department of Agriculture. But excepting one instance, it really didn't have much to do with production and trade, but was rather kept busy by managing the sort of protests I looked at in Prairie Fire, the second Peters and Sheep episode, as well as trying to make agreements between farmers and farm workers. That said, the Republican Department and the Transport Union as well was involved in setting up a number of cooperative farms. But mostly the only entry of the Dáil Department of Agriculture into the world of actual agricultural production was in forestry, and mostly that seems to have been more symbolic. It held an Arbor Day on the 1st of November 1919, which was a mass tree planting. It had distributed thousands of trees to schools, farmers and local Sinn Féin groups. Uh, In some instances, this involved planting 16 trees in memory of the 16 executed leaders of the Easter Rebellion. Now, to get back to the bacon and butter embargo, it's worth quoting parts of the open letter issued by the Trade Union Congress executive when some of the Cork and Limerick bacon curing firms said they would shut down their factories rather than accede to demands of price control. Uh, This letter is of interest on two accounts. One, that it shows something of the stance taken by trade union leaders towards farmers which is important because the working class did not constitute the overwhelming majority of Ireland's population. In fact, workers were a minority even of the agrarian workforce. And two, because it shows something of the intellectual context of what happens in 1921 and more so in 1922 when there are workplaces taken over by their workers. Now, the open letter might be a mixture of sabre-rattling and radical posturing for sure. 
But the fact that even comparatively right-wing or at least moderate Congress leaders were writing like this shows the widespread reach of notions of workers' control. So on to uh, the uh, open letter issued by the Trade Union Congress executive in response to Cork and Limerick um, bacon factory owners saying that they'd shut down rather than agree to price control. Quote, We lay before you two alternative propositions. The first is that the bacon curers and merchants, through their associations, the workers engaged in the bacon curing industry through their trade unions, and the breeders and feeders, through the agricultural cooperative societies, should meet immediately and devise ways and means of governing the industry in Ireland, having as the primary purpose to supply the Irish people with bacon at a reasonable price. The organised labour movement in general, including those workers engaged in transport, will act as a safeguard for the interests of the consuming public. The second alternative proposition is that failing immediate action by those engaged in the industry towards the regulation of prices and conserving of supplies, the organised workers themselves will take the task in hands. We intend to be quite open in the matter and lay our cards upon the table. We do not recognise the right of the owners of bacon factories to withhold their premises and machineries from use at their own discretion against the common interest. These material structures have been built and adapted by the workers for a social purpose, that is, to provide bacon for the people. If those who hold these things in trust refuse to fulfil their trust, the people must relieve them of their trust. We have available the workers and their experience, the killing staff, the curing staff, the clerical staff. We have the means of distribution within Ireland at our disposal. We have the cooperative market of Great Britain for our surplus. We shall enter at once into negotiation with the organised workers of England, Scotland and Wales through their wholesale cooperative societies. They will be glad to provide the necessary finance to enable us to pay for the pigs, knowing that after our home needs are satisfied, they will have a plentiful supply for distribution to their working class membership at a price which has not been inflated by the interposition of the profiteers. A protest may be raised that it will be illegal to enter into the possession of a factory without the proprietor's sanction, and that such an action would be prevented by the armed forces of the British Crown. We answer, perhaps, perhaps not. We shall take the risk. We shall take our chance that the miners, railwaymen and dock workers of industrial Britain would kick against the use of their government's forces to prevent the development of a scheme which would provide them with cheaper bacon. To our friends, the breeders and feeders of pigs, the small working farmers, we would also add a word. No one who thinks on the subject will attach blame to you for accepting the price that is thrown at you for your pigs. Your function in the communal life is to provide food and you are not to be blamed for the failure to organise the distribution of that food justly. We recognise you as fellow workers, recompensed on a different basis, it is true, but nevertheless you depend upon the expenditure of personal effort for a livelihood as we do, not upon the exploitation of other men's labour, nor upon rent nor interest, nor upon profit in exchange. Our proposals will ensure you a reasonable price for your pork. You know from experience that excessively high prices do not promote healthy business, that when prices become abnormal, breeding and feeding quickly degenerates into mere gambling. Your true interests will be best served by direct association with the town workers. When your organisations, the cooperative societies, enter into trading relations with the town workers, 
through their organisations and act together to control the export trade and goods you produce by your hands from your lands, we shall have found a way to the solution of many problems that at present confront the nation. That was a long quote, but it is an interesting document, for a number of reasons. As I said, it baldly and boldly pronounces a proposal to take over the processing factories. And in the next few years, that sort of thing is going to be happening. But there are other aspects of note. Firstly, the letter puts forward a category of working farmer, which it hopes to appeal to by offering a scheme of cooperative marketing, which would offer a better price for the producer by removing mercantile middlemen. This is something one sees the trade union leadership pushing on other occasions in the next few years. Secondly, as well as that carrot, the letter has a stick. And that stick is the miners, railwaymen and dock workers of industrial Britain. It is basically making the claim that the British government will be restrained in its response to workers' movement action in Ireland for fear of provoking solidarity action in Britain. The group of workers it lists, railwaymen, dockers and miners, were organised into unions loosely affiliated as the Triple Alliance. Black Friday, the 15th of April 1921, needs to be seen as a significant date in our understanding of the Irish Revolution. That was the day that the Triple Alliance came apart, the day when the dock workers and rail workers unions refused to join the miners' strike action. That must have altered the balance of power in Ireland. But we are getting a long way away from the IFU, the Irish Farmers' Union. April 1920 and the butter and bacon embargo was the moment it was proposed that the union establish its own paramilitary body, the Farmers' Freedom Force. This was not a proposal universally welcomed within the farmers' organisation. County executive committees in Cork, Galway and Dublin were dissenting. The Farmers' Freedom Force remained just something on paper, but its name was evoked by the labour press when reporting instances of intimidation carried out by farmers in industrial disputes. In any case, the role of protecting farmers was filled by the IRA and later much more so by the Free State Army. It's nearly time to wrap up now, so let's get back to George O'Callaghan Westrop and reflect a bit on his place in history. So he reinvented himself as a farmer's leader. He was a founding member of the Clare Farmers Association, the local branch of the Irish Farmers Union. He was on the Irish Farmers Union National Executive, on some of its standing committees, and three times he was one of the union's vice presidents. He was asked to stand for election to the Dáil, the Irish Parliament, in 1927, but he wouldn't put himself forward. As one might expect, that was for to be a candidate for the Farmers' Party. Not only did George O'Callaghan Westrop reinvent himself as a farmer's leader while coming from a landlord family, but his family background was perhaps particularly notorious, and he maybe didn't move all that much. He continued to expect to be referred to as Colonel, that was his military title from his days in the British Army. He was involved in the British Legion, he sent his son to an English boarding school and so on. As for the notorious family background, Colonel John O'Callaghan of 1829 to 1912 was George's father and he was a diehard landlord in the era of the land war and the plan of campaign responsible for the famed but dyke evictions of 1887. The fact that 40 years later his son was a farmer's leader, that really should make us pause when we hear essentialist accounts, either conservative ones focused on atavistic hatreds or romantic populist ones. And George O'Callaghan Westrob was not the only ex-landlord to find a new home in the upper ranks of the Irish Farmers' Union. Perhaps peace with Sinn Féin was easier than coming to accommodation with the Home Rule Party, which was, after all, linked with grassroots extra-parliamentary organisations which promulgated both agrarianism and sectarianism. 
By contrasting the cattle drives of 1920, Sinn Féin took a conservative stance, protecting the property from potential expropriation. Have a listen to the earlier Peters and Sheep podcast Prairie Fire about the cattle drives of 1920. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode on the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution, looking at the Dublin farm workers' mobilisation in 1913. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. You can find out more about our project on our website, pillowsandsheep.ie, and look us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as well.